Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Inside the Studio on iHeartRadio. My name's Jordan Runtog, but enough about me. My guest today is the co-founder and leader of one of the greatest horn sections on planet Earth. They've notched hits like So Very Hard to Go, You're Still a Young Man, and of course, the immortal floor filler What is Hip. They've also backed a dizzying array of music's biggest artists, from Elton John and the Stones to Huey Lewis, Little Feet, Santana, the list goes on and on. The group celebrated half a century together with a new live album recorded in their hometown of Oakland. It's called 50 Years of Funkin' Soul, live at the Fox Theater. And now you're about to hear all sorts of tales from their incredible run, from the guy who's been there for every note of their music. I'm so happy to welcome Mr. Emilio Castillo from Tower of Power. Well, I have so many things to ask you, but I guess we'll just dive right in. You've just wrapped up a new tour with Tower of Power, it must have been so nice to get back out on the road after the last year and a half. I imagine that was probably the longest time you've been off the road in quite some years. 52 years. Never been <laughs> off the road that much. That is nuts. Oh, my goodness. I mean, how was that time at home? Did you find yourself uh, staying sharp musically by by writing? And like, what kind of stuff did you do to keep busy? I did. I wrote... Uh... I practiced my instrument, which I've never really been one to practice a lot. Uh, never needed to. I confess that because I play all the time, you know. Uh, but uh, I practiced my instruments and uh, did some writing. Uh, I got married uh, not quite a year before the pandemic. And uh, so it was you know, some great time to be with my new wife. And, uh, oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, really nice. And, uh, you know, uh, I was kind of a non-belief for six months, thinking it's going to end any day. 
And after six months, I strapped myself in and said, I'm in for the long haul and made the best of it. And, uh, you know, a lot of good things came out of it, but uh, grateful to be back at work. Yeah. What was the response like? Must have been really rapturous. Really good for the most part. Not every single gig. Uh, I mean, we always get a good response, but some better than others. Some were really off the chain, you know. Like we just did this last weekend, uh, five shows in Seattle at the Jazz Alley, and uh, every one of the shows was packed, and they were just really excited, and uh, that really makes it easy for us to do a good show. Oh, man. I mean, speaking of live performances, you recently released a live album celebrating your 50th anniversary as a band, fittingly at the Fox Theater in Oakland. Taking it all the way back to your start, how did this all begin for you? Was there a moment when you knew that music was going to be sort of the guiding force in your life? Well, I started playing when I was 14, and uh, I always tell people, you know, we, we did it completely backwards. We didn't practice for years and years and join a band. We started a band the first day, and then we learned how to play. And uh, <laughs> I remember uh, my, my buddy Jody Lopez around the corner had gotten a guitar, and he knew how to play that intro to uh, Pretty Woman by Roy Orbison. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. And my brother could go, bam, 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 on the drum. <laughs> and, and I squeaked on the saxophone, and my mother walked in and said, they're going to be huge stars. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like the band just became my whole life. And very shortly after that, my father came to me and he said, you have to be the leader of the band. Now, my brother was the drummer and he's 10 months older than me. And so he was the leader. You know, we're kids. Yeah. The older one's the leader. And I said, no, nah, Jack's the leader. <laughs> you know, And he goes, no. He goes, you need to be the leader because you, you're the one that's sort of telling everybody what to do musically, you know. And, uh, and he forced me to be a leader, and uh, that changed my life. <laughs> now, a lot of bands in the mid-60s are heavily influenced by the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, but you were different in that, from my understanding, you were influenced by another B, the Batman. That's true. Uh, that wasn't really our idea. We... Uh, <laughs> We liked um, rock and roll, you know. We, uh, you know, for there was a, when we first started playing, uh, people wore costumes. You know, there was Paul Revere and the Raiders, and, and in the Bay Area, there was uh, some friends at our high school named Peter Wheaton the Breadman. There was another band called the Dutch Masters, who, you know, dressed like those Puritans on the cigar boxes. That's amazing. Uh, you know, there were all these bands that, that dressed certain ways with these costumes. And we were called the Extension Five, and we just played rock and roll. Louie Louie and, you know, Hang On Sloopy and, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, we had a pretty tight little band, and we all wore, you know, sharkskin matador outfits. And uh, we went to go audition at this place that, uh, it was actually a topless bar, but on Sundays, they had uh, a teen dance. And so we went there to audition for the teen dance, and the guy there, there was two of them, Sidney Dops and Jerry Ralston. I'll never forget. These guys were something else. And they came to my mother, who was the manager at the time, and they said, uh, we have an idea. The Batman show was just coming out. And, you know, when it actually came out, it proved to be a really bogus sort of, you know, but before it came out, the buildup was huge. 
They had a big ad campaign. And, you know, Superman, the, the series, was always very popular. And now all of a sudden, here comes Batman. Everybody thought it was going to be great. Plus, it was in color, you know. So it was going to be this huge thing. And he said, we want to name your kids Batman and the Robins. We'll have your drummer dress as Batman and all the other uh, four guys dress as Robin. We'll put a, a blue silk thing around the drums that looks like a bat cave. And we'll put these boxes with lights blinking, uh, perforated plastic in front, blinking so it looks like this. You know? A bat signal, yeah. <laughs> these are, you know, computers, I guess. And uh, so, you know, my mom, also quite a promoter, you know, she goes, you know, yeah, we'll do that, you know. And they said they were going to contact the TV show and say, you, you know, you have to have them on the show. So they did that. My mom and and, uh, and Rocco's mom got busy sewing, you know, uh, outfits. And uh, they contacted the TV show and said, you know, we're so excited about the new show that's going to premiere, you know, uh, next month. And uh, we really uh, urge you to bring on the hottest rock and roll band in the business Batman and the Robins, and they immediately got a letter that said, cease and desist immediately. <laughs> and that's it's illegal to use the name. And these guys, they didn't even miss a step. They they took a step back, they went, We'll call it the Gotham City Crime Fighters. And and that's what they did. And and within like two weeks, we were playing the top places in the Bay Area as the number one act. And they build us as, don't miss the Gotham City Crime Fighters with their $15,000 light show. Now, you got to understand, in 1965, $15,000 was like, you know, $100,000, you know. And all we really have are these boxes that we made out of plywood with this plastic and the lights blinking. But people bought it and we were mobbed. I mean, for about three months, we were like the biggest stars in the Bay Area. We played uh, Longshoreman's Hall and the Boss of Go-Go at the Hotel Leamington, all over town, you know. And uh, and then, you know, it all went away. As soon as the show came out, it was bogus. <laughs> you know, it was really... Yeah, Adam West. Uh... The whole thing blew up, you know. We got tired of it. Oh, man. Well, aside from, from Batman, who were some of your other early musical influences? I mean, James Brown's Famous Flames come to mind immediately. I know you're born and raised in Detroit. I imagine there must have been a lot of soul in those early days. Yeah, I lived in Detroit till I was 11. And my parents, uh, you know, they loved uh, albums, you know, and they played them all the time and singles, 45s. So they had Elvis Presley and they had uh, Bill Doggett, Honky Tonk. Oh, they always man. played the platters. Uh, they were really big fans of the platters. My mother said, I used to sit on the toilet at six years old and sing Only You by the platters verbatim. <laughs> I was a really good little mimic. And uh, they, they listened to Sarah Vaughn and Dinah Washington, a lot of Nat King Cole, you know, that kind of stuff. So that's what I listened to as a young boy. Then I got out to the Bay Area. And I'm missing my my friends in Detroit. And that's when all those songs started coming out in New York by Carol King and Jerry Goffin and Barry Mann and Cynthia Wheel, you know, the Drifters and uh, the Coasters and, uh, you know, all that the kind Benny of stuff. King I stuff. Love, I love that sound, you know. Uh, all those Burt Bacharach songs by oh. Dionne Warwick, you know, I love that stuff. And then 
right about that time, the Motown thing hit. And of course, I'm missing my friends in Detroit. So the my radio became oh. my friend, you know. And I just loved songs and records. And so all the Motown artists, Little Anthony and the Imperials, certainly later on, James Brown. I remember my my dad and I watching him on TV. And then one night, Wayne Cochran came on. He was like the white James Brown down in Florida. And we were watching him. He had this big 17-piece band. And, you know, we just love that stuff. Sam and Dave, Otis Redding, really into it, you know. Just before it a few years, uh, one of the, the preeminent San Francisco promoters and impresarios in the 60s and really ever, Bill Graham, ran Fillmore West and East at the time. Uh, and he signed you to his label. How did you first link up with, with Bill Graham? Well, the first time I met Bill Graham, I was actually, uh, it was right after uh, <laughs> the Gotham City Crime Fighters. And we went there and auditioned at the original Fillmore on Geary. Geary, yeah. And, uh, and I remember Bill Graham went to my mother and, uh, and he said, I think you boys need to do another year in the garage. And, uh, and we did. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, a few years later, uh, after I got into soul music and started, uh, we, we, we had a band called the Motowns. And when I met Doc, we wanted to get into the Fillmore West. And so we knew we'd never get in there wearing suits and being called the Motowns. <laughs> so we changed the name to Tower of Power and grew our hair long and, you know, started dressing like everybody else was dressing that day during that time. Hippies, you know. And we got an audition at the Fillmore West. And uh, by God's grace, you know, Bill Graham dug us. And he had just started uh, two new record companies. One was distributed through Columbia and the other one distributed through Atlantic. And the one on Atlantic was uh, San Francisco Records. And we signed our first deal with them. And he was partners with a producer named David Rubinson. So David Rubinson and Bill, they saw us audition. And they dug it. And uh, next thing I know, we were signed to an album deal. And, you know, everybody was trying to get on those labels. I mean, everybody in the Bay Area and people were flying in from Texas, from Chicago, from Florida to try and get on on Bill's label. And we were nobody. We were like the little puddlies, you know. Nobody knew who we were, (laughs) you know. And uh, But we played good soul music. We were good to dance to. And we had these originals that we had written. And they went, yeah, and they signed us. And you've often said that, that you know, Oakland is your sound. I mean, what is it about the Bay Area that really contributed to, to your music and, and made it what it was? You know, cities in general have a, have a when it comes to soul music, uh, they have a sound. You know, New Orleans has mm-hmm. a, a more a loose kind of uh, bump to it. And uh, their singing is uh, much different than, say, Motown or Philly or Chicago or New York. Uh, in Oakland, it was a real urban soul sound. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you know this, but Sly Stone was a disc jockey in Oakland, you know, and he was a big influence on us because he was everybody's favorite DJ. I mean, everybody listened to him as a DJ, even people that weren't into soul music because he was such a personality on the radio. And, uh, you know, he was first on KSOL, K-Soul Radio. Then he was on KDIA. And right about the, the time that I became a soul band, I saw his band, Sam uh, oh. Stone, at a local nightclub near my house. And we used to go there, Rocco and I, every weekend. And, we, you know, they had a, <laughs> they had a cyclone fence in the back 
and there was a swimming pool in there. We used to climb over that fence and go in the back door of the club and sneak in. And we would stay there till like nine in the morning because at eight o'clock they served free breakfast. And Sly and the Family <laughs> Stone, they used to play like, you know, four sets uh, up till 2 a.m., you know, and then take a break. And at 2 a.m., the bar shut down. And they had this law in Hayward, California, and most of the Bay Area, that you couldn't dance and you couldn't drink between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. So the bands that played what, what's called After Hours, they had to put on a show. You know, they had, they did shtick. You know, they would, like, do comedy routines. And, like, Sly and them, they would go down onto the dance floor and do hand bone contests between each <laughs> other. And they would start a song and... Everybody would switch over to the next instrument and then play for a while and go to the next until they came all the way around back to their own instrument. You know, stuff like that. You had to do that to play after hours. We wound up being an after hours band for, you know, probably three years. I mean, we played after hours a lot. So Sly was a big influence on us. Not, not that we wanted to be, uh, our music to be like his. We wanted our band to be exciting live like he was. He had the energy. And we dug that. And plus, he had Gregor Rico on drums. And that was the first real hip funk drummer that hit the scene. And he was really bringing it, you know. And I started messing with the beat right around there. Oh, I mean, Sly, it's crazy. I mean, you, like you said, I mean, what a, a huge influence in the scene. I mean, not only with the band and as a DJ, but wasn't he, he was producing bands. Dude, didn't he produce the initial incarnation of Jefferson Airplane, the, the great Great Society? Didn't he produce some of their early stuff? I'm not sure about that, but he produced the Bo Brummels. Yeah, that's right. Laugh, laugh, and yeah. Just a little, cry just a little. And he also produced Bobby Freeman, Come On and Swim, which was a huge national hit. That was him? I didn't know that was him. He it, and he played the, the guitar. Oh, that makes so much sense because that guitar, I mean, that, that that's a heavy record today. I, I DJ 45 soul nights and stuff and I play that all the time. Great. It's great. Oh, man. I mean, how tight were, were, were you in Tower of Power with, with San Francisco bands like, you know, the ones I just mentioned, like Jefferson Airplane or Quicksilver Messenger Service or like, were, were they, had they kind of moved on the, more of the psych people by the time that you guys were really coming into your own? You know, they had kind of had their run by the time we hit the scene. But over the the, you know, the years, we became familiar with all of them. Because, you know, the Jefferson Airplane, they kind of, you know, reunited and changed their name to the Starship. And we played on their records and, you know, Quicksilver Messenger Service. Although I didn't know them when, you know, before we got signed to Bill. After we got signed to Bill and years later, I worked with uh, Huey Lewis in the News and Mario Cipollino was the bass player, and his brother John was in Quicksilver Messenger Service. And so, and then uh, David Freiberg was the bass player for Quicksilver. He wound up being the bass player for uh, the Starship, you know. So, yeah, I, I got to know all of them, you know, all the bands in the Bay Area. And uh, it was a great time to be in the Bay Area. I mean, the whole world was looking at the Bay Area. Yeah, I mean, that was the scene. I mean, I and you know, I give all the credit for that to Bill Graham. I mean, he literally changed the music industry when he started throwing concerts because he tweaked the collective ear of the Bay Area. And he did it in New York, too. And the way he mm -hmm. did it was once he got so popular that his place was the place to be, and that was pretty quickly, he'd have the Grateful Dead, but then he'd have, you know, uh, 
uh, Howlin' Wolf and uh, Tito Puente, you know. And then the next night, he'd have Quicksilver and Miles Davis and Rasan Roland Kirk. You know, uh, all these, and he would have Sam and Dave and Otis Redding and Janis Joplin, you know. All these really, and everybody, that's when, you know, everybody's getting high, expanding their minds. And all these hippies are out there just going, oh, dude, this is cool. You know, looking at Otis Redding, you know. Well, and you guys opening for Aretha at, I think it was Fillmore East. What? Fillmore West. Oh, was it the West? What was that experience like? Phenomenal. Phenomenal. We actually played a gig uh, opening for her. One week earlier, the weekend before that, uh, at the CBS convention in Los Angeles. And uh, Doc always tells this story. You know, we, we always stood at our microphones and played right in the microphones. You know, we, we had a big <laughs> horn section sound. Well, she had the Memphis horns with her. And when she played at, at the uh, convention, you know, they all sat down and they're reading parts and the mics were like this far away. <laughs> and they got we 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 pretty much I mean we brought it pretty good at the CBS convention. So when we got to the Fillmore West, we noticed they were all on their mics now. <laughs> so, yeah. And then uh, she had Bernard Purdy playing drums for her, oh, and yeah. uh, and you know he knew about us and he really dug us and he used to come. We played this Monday and Tuesday night gig in Jack London Square called the On Broadway. And everybody was coming to sit in. All the guys from Sly, from Cold Blood, Elvin Bishop, Boss Gags, Hugh Masakila used to come, you know, Santana. And uh, Bernard Purdy, when he was in town, he would come down there, you know. So he knew us. And uh, so if you listen to that record, Aretha Live at the Fillmore, on the last night when Ray Charles came to set in on uh, Spirit in the Dark, they took the, the ride out really long. And at one point, he breaks it down. And Bernard had gotten off the drums. He goes, goes to David Garibaldi, come on. you know. And David plays the ride out after that. And then Bernard's getting so excited because David's grooving. He starts smashing the cymbals on two and four. you know. And you can hear that on the record. you know. It was oh. a great, great, great weekend. I remember also... Uh, Cold Blood wanted to play. and. Uh, but Bill decided we were the ones right for the gig, but he let them play on Saturday night. And so I went there and I'm listening to Cold Blood. And, you know, they had stolen our trumpet player, Mick Gillette. And so he was with them. And, but he missed us. And he used to come and sit in with us all the time, even though he was with them. And I remember he came to me and he said, you know, I want to sit in the film when we play with Aretha. <laughs> of course you do. <laughs> and I said, you know, that wouldn't be right. <laughs> because you're with cold blood now, you know, and uh, you're like their secret weapon. It wouldn't be right for me to use them on our set. So I didn't let them sit in with us. And uh, I remember I was backstage listening to them, and they're a great band. They sound wonderful, you know. And I was back there with a couple of the background singers, Sweethearts of Soul. And one of the girls, she's listening, she looks at me, and she goes, They're good. I go, Yeah, they are. And she goes, not as good as you. <laughs> <laughs> and I that remember also the story I always tell about Aretha. You know, it was a real media event. So <laughs> they had this backstage dressing room. It was a big room, you know. It was like 
three bedrooms, the size of it, you know, but all open, you know, and we were all in there, you know. But there was so much media and so many, you know, uh, groupies and hangers. Everybody wanted to be in that dressing room. So it was packed, you know, and I couldn't even get in. So I was standing in the doorway. <laughs> and here comes Aretha. And I'm standing there. And so I turn sideways and I lean against the door jam. And she slides in and she's face to face with me, nose to nose. And she goes, Tower Power my favorite band and i just melted that's one of my most favorite memories of all time i i would ride that for the rest of my life yes that's amazing wow Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
God, I mean, just so many memories. I mean, I you you mentioned earlier about sort of making the jump from from playing covers to to writing your own material. How did that come to pass? How did you start uh, writing your own music? I give all the credit to Doc. <laughs> you know, my thing as the band leader of the band called the Motowns was I messed with the beat and I messed with the horn arrangements and I messed with the vocal arrangements. So I would make up these weird beats. We would be doing 99 and a half by Wilson Pickett, but I didn't want to do it with the beat for the record. You know, so I would make up a beat like, and I would teach my brother the beat. You know, we would rehearse and rehearse. rehearse. I'd get him the beat and then I'd make up a bass line. I'd teach that to Rocco and I'd find a part on the guitar that, you know, Jody could do that would go in and out, you know, and uh, and then I'd, I'd, I'd change the horn parts a little bit. You know, not, not a lot, but a little bit, you know, and that was what I did. And then one day Doc comes to me after I hired him and he'd been in the band for a little bit and we were sounding good, you know. And he says, you know, what you're doing with these songs is amazing, you know. And he says, but why are we doing them to everybody else's songs? Why don't we write our own? And I always tell people, I don't know that I ever would have thought about that. That thought never occurred to me. I was totally happy doing what I was doing, you know. But I looked at him, I go, we can try that, you know. And so I went over to his apartment, you know, a couple of days later. And uh, first song we wrote, You're Still the Young Man. Still to this day, one of the biggest tunes we ever wrote. And was that... I had heard a story that that was semi-autobiographical. Is that is that true? Well, yeah, I, I had a, uh, I was 18, and I had a girlfriend that was 24 years old. And she was gorgeous, gorgeous girl. And we we had this torrid love affair, and she had this ex-boyfriend, and she wound up leaving uh -oh. me to go back with the guy. And he was kind of abusive. He was a Vietnam vet, and he was kind of abusive, but. She had this thing for me. She she left me to go back to him and broke my heart. I mean, I was devastated, you know, young, you know. And, and uh, but then she came back to me, you know. And uh, when she first broke up with me, she would always say, you know, you need to hang out with girls your own age. You know, <laughs> you know I'm too old for you. You know, you're, you know, you're too young to be with a woman my age. And I was like, no, 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 no. I want to be with you. So when we sat down to write You're Still a Man, first we wrote the intro. We had this really great trumpet player, Mick Gillette, and there was this song by The Impressions called uh, My Woman's Love that started with this beautiful yeah. intro called, it was a really high trumpet. We loved it, you know. And so first thing Doc and me said, we, we got to write a trumpet intro. So we wrote the intro to still the man. And then I said, so we got to tell a story. Well, how about a, a guy is, you know, um, these girls are, this girl is telling them you're too young. You know, don't waste your time with me. And the guy is pleading his case. No, no, I'm not too young. I love you, you know. And I was basing it off me and this girl, Sharon Martin. And so, uh, yeah, we just started writing it. You know, down on my knees, heart in hand. I was accused of being too young. But I'm not too young. Can't you understand? I think like a man. You're still a young man. <laughs> the girls can, you know. Of course, we didn't have no girls, so we sang the background. Did she ever know that that was about her? No, but she, you know, I told you she came back to me 
and then broke up with me again. And the second time I kind of got over it. And then she came back a third time. And by then we had become, you know, we had some notoriety by that. She was under the impression that I wrote this other song, Sparkling in the Sand, for her. Because somebody said, I think somebody told her, you know, that song is about <laughs> you and him, you know. But she thought it was this other one, the song with the flute, Sparkling in the Sand, which was another love song. But that wasn't really written for her. I got to ask about what is hip? What is the genesis of that track? And that's and probably, I would imagine, uh, the, uh, the one that, that gets people on their feet the most at your shows just because it's such a classic. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely is. Uh, you know, we have to play it. We'll get lynched if we don't play what it's like. <laughs> and we generally close the show with it. And it was Doc's. Uh, once again, I give the credit to Doc. You know, he's really lyrically the clever lyricist. I, I kind of come up with clever lyrics here and there. He sort of lives by them, <laughs> you know. And uh, he came to me and he said, uh, I want to write a song called What is Hip? And I go, what is hip? What does that mean? He goes, well, you know, what's hip today, tomorrow will be passe, you know. And I go, oh, okay. And so we decided to write it. And then we uh, invited David Garibaldi to come and join us in the writing process. And mainly Doc and I, I came up with the chords and, you know, him and I worked out the lyrics on the verses. Uh, But Dave is the one that uh, after we had written it, he was in the rehearsal hall. Uh, they used to jam. We would rehearse from 11 to 5, but then these guys from Santana would come over. You know, the <laughs> bass player, Dougie Rush, he was really good. And, and him and David would jam. And there was a song called I'm Going Down by Freddie King. And it had this bass line, you know, it was really cool, you know. And so they were jamming on that. And then David, as he's prone to do, he always like, you come up with the beat, then he goes, you know, we could do this, you know. And so he put this hit in there, a 16th before one. You know, and then then he added two more. Bop, 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 you know. And so he comes in, he says, man, we were, me and Dougie were jamming last night. We were jamming on that groove from I'm going down. He says, you know, maybe we could use that for what is hip. And he, you know, they played it for me. And I go, are you kidding? Yeah, that'll work perfect. I sing right over it. It fit perfectly. And then Rocco, of course, on the bass, he he took it to another level on the bass. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like an earthquake. I mean, that that's that's a song you got to listen to on good speakers or something. You got to feel that track. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, there's so many things, so many incredible songs. I I, I think I have this right. I, I You're... I would imagine you're one of the few people who's worked with both Quincy Jones and George Martin. Uh, two, I mean, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to name more famous producers in in history. What were those experiences like? I mean, George Martin, I'm a huge Beatles fan. This, I, it was around, I imagine, when he was producing um, America. What, uh, what was he like in the studio? Well, we did... Um what was the Beatles movie? Uh, oh, Sergeant Pepper. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Yeah, so they made the movie starring Peter Frampton, and he brought in our horn section and some other horn players. Very good, uh, Chuck Finley, Bill Watrous. You know, and we did like three or four days of recording, a lot of recording. And uh, he was a perfect gentleman always, but 
he was very specific about what he wanted, you know, and and he had a way of just really respectfully letting you know, no, right here, we need it, or, you know, want you to check the tuning here, or right there, that note's a little short, I, I need the full length on it. He was, he was very musically very knowledgeable and very specific, and I we love that. We, we uh, don't like it when we're in the, you know, in the studio and a producer goes, you know, I want it to be like, you know, when the rose petal hits the floor <laughs> and that kind of stuff, you know. That makes no, we like people that talk music, you know, and he, he was a real musician. And then, you know, we did that and it was great. And then a few years later, he was producing the band America. And he was up at our studio that we recorded at in Sausalito, the record plant. And he called us again. And, uh, and, and once again, same thing. Real gentleman, but respectfully, very specific about what he wanted. And he just brought it out of him. I mean, you could see why he was such a great producer. You know? And, uh, I mean, Quincy must have been cool for you. I mean, because all those stories about, you know, Sarah Vaughn and the swinging Ms. D and folks like that. I mean, folks you grew up with, that must have been uh, a really nice full circle moment for all your influences. Yeah, we knew Quincy because we toured with him when he had he had a hit record called Body Heat, and he brought out a really hot band, and uh, we actually he had a trumpet player named Bill Lamb that used to come sit in with us. Him and Mick Gillette together was phenomenal. But he also had this guitar and bass player named uh, Johnson, you know, Lewis Johnson and his brother, and uh, he said. I'm going to do a record on these guys and I want you guys to be on it because you know, he really dug us. I mean, every night, you know, we were bringing it and he, he just dug the band a lot. So we were all friendly, you know, and uh, sure enough, you know, a few months later, he calls us in the studio in Los Angeles and uh, you know, we're doing the tracks and they sound great. You know, and we're kind of taking a little break and we're complimenting him on it. He goes, this thing's going to go, go, you know, immediately, you know, and, and mind you, nobody knew who the Brothers Johnson were. You know, they, they had done one tour with Quincy Jones. That's it. So, but that's how sure of it he was. And he started talking about all the gold records we have, blah, blah, blah. And we didn't have any gold records, you know. And he goes, what do you mean you don't have any gold records? I go, I don't know. We never got any, you know. And he says, are you kidding me? Warner Brothers didn't send you gold records for the Tower of Power album for Back to Oakland? Are you? I'm shocked by that. And I go, uh, I go, no, we never got one. And he goes, uh, well, you're getting one for this one. This is going gold, and you're going to get one. And sure enough, man, a couple months later, delivered to my door, gold record, you know, and I still have it. Oh, that is a great. That's the one with uh, the Shuggy Otis track, Strawberry Letter 23. Oh, that is a. That's a great record. We actually played on that song, but uh, I don't think he put the, I think he took the horns off from that one. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If 
you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President, Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. It's funny, before I knew I was talking to you, I was watching or listening on YouTube to you and the Stones at Candlestick Park in, almost exactly 40 years ago, in October of 81, uh, doing Satisfaction at the end. It's on, on YouTube, and it just sounded so good. And this was this is actually before I knew I was talking to you. I just wanted to hear it because it's such a legendary show. What, what are your memories of, uh, of, of that night at Candlestick Park? I didn't know that was on YouTube. I got to watch that. Yeah. yeah, that was phenomenal. You know, um, <laughs> Bill Graham uh, was the one that promoted not only that tour, but several of their tours at that time. And uh, and he wanted us to play with the Stones. But he came to me and he said, you know, with the Rolling Stones, you can't go to them and say, I, w- I would like you to have these guys play with you, you know, because it's just, it can't be done. <laughs> they have to ask you. And he said, so... I'm going to make sure that you are in their presence for the next few weeks. And uh, we did a gig with, uh, we were playing with Hart at the time, the horn sections, and they were opening for the Stones, and they did it in Denver. And Bill, Bill said, I want you to come to the hospitality suite after the show in the hotel and uh, bring your horns, but don't bring them in. <laughs> and so... We go, okay, and you know, and then we get there. We're in this hospitality suite. I mean, there's fine wines and all this great food, you know, records, super sound system, records are playing. And then before we know it, here comes Mick Jagger. And he comes in and starts talking. And, and I remember he was really into Prince. Prince had just come up. And we knew who Prince was because he recorded his first record 
across the hall from us in Sausalito. So he's asking me, do you know Prince? You know, and I'm like, yeah, yeah we do actually. You know, he was across the hall. He, he actually took our second engineer. <laughs> and uh, and he starts talking about that and we're getting along. And Bill's over there going, oh, this is going good. You know, and he says, uh, hey, he goes, uh, the guys have their horns. He goes, uh, and he tells our roadie was with us. He goes, uh, why don't you go get the horns? Bring them up. You know, I don't know what he's thinking. What are we going to do? Play the horns in the hospitality suite? You know? <laughs> and uh, so he sends my roadie down, and we're all kind of feeling kind of awkward. The next thing we know, Mick sort of stops talking, and he turns around, and he kind of dances out of the room backwards, and he was gone. And Bill goes, ah, I messed up. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> you know, we're like, what? What happened? And he goes, that that didn't feel right to him. You know, so when I said to get the horn, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done it. And so then he flew me to San Diego, to Los Angeles, and then finally, and I'm and I'm hanging out, you know, where the Rolling Stones are, you know, and they're completely ignoring me. <laughs> you know, I'm not a real, I'm not a real, uh, you know, uh, social person in terms of, you know, hey man, let's party, you know, kind of thing. I'm just hanging out, you know. And of course, so they're, they're, you know, because what he told me was, he said, you have to understand, think if you were like, you know, your face was the most recognizable face in the entire world, because that's what these guys deal with on a daily basis. And he goes, so it has to be their idea and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And so I'm, you know, Denver, San Diego, Los Angeles. Finally, we get to uh, the Bay Area and... uh you know, I'm tired. I've been hanging out. Nobody's asking me to do nothing. <laughs> I don't know. So, you know, I'm kind of burnt out. And then, uh, but I go to Candlestick Park, and Bill's like, you know, and he has a talk with Mick Jagger. He goes, look, you know, don't you get it? <laughs> I keep putting this guy in your presence because I want the horns to play with you. They're the greatest horn section in the world, you know? And Mick goes, oh, well, yeah, certainly, you know? And so we're supposed to play Satisfaction. And this is the first night. And uh, Keith Keith Richards wasn't there. And finally he shows up late and he's sick, probably dope sick, you know. And uh, doesn't feel good. And he comes in and we're in there, uh, you know, um, getting ready. And he's, what's this? You know, and Mick goes, oh, top our horns are going to play with us. He goes, not tonight. <laughs> and they canceled us. And, oh. and that was it for me. That was the start of the book camp. I said, I'm out of here, you know. And uh, But Doc, Doc and Keith Richards, they got along pretty good. And uh, Doc was devastated because we were ready to go on, you know. And so um, after the show, Bill Graham goes up to Keith Richards because he knows that he likes Doc. And he goes, uh, man, I can't believe you did that. You know, and Keith goes, what? And he says, you devastated that poor guy. He goes, who? You know, he goes, Doc. He goes, they, they were going to play, man. It's a big deal, you know. He goes, well, we'll do it tomorrow, <laughs> you know. And so I wasn't there. <laughs> I had gone home and I was staying with my father-in-law. And by then, I'm trash, man. I'm, I'm done. And I woke up the next morning. I remember my father going, aren't you going to the stadium? I said, no, heck with that, man. I'm done. You know, he goes, I think you should go. And so you know, got a cab, went there. And when I drive up in the cab, 
Bill Graham is in there out in the parking lot waiting for me. <laughs> Get in there. They're rehearsing. <laughs> and I go into this trailer and the guys all got their horns out. And I'm getting my horn out. And Keith Richards looks at me and he goes, we're doing satisfaction. Do you know the Otis Redding parts? You know, I go, yeah, I think so. You know, we played that song a million times, right? And so we start working it up and they, they like it. So it's all, it's all arranged. We're going to go on for the encore. So they play their set and they have a, like a little rolling riser with five mics for us. And we're behind this scrim, you know, where you can't see us, but we can sort of see through it to the stage. And they're killing it, you know, and, and then the set ends and they come off and we're getting all ready. And Keith Richards goes on to our riser and passes out. And the next thing I know, uh, Bill Graham's on top of him and he's punching him in the heart and he's giving him mouth to mouth and he is not coming to And I'm like, I can't even believe this. After all this, this guy's going to OD and die right here. You know? And the next thing I know, this guy comes up with this black bag. It's obviously their doctor and shoots him up with something. <laughs> and Keith Richards jumps up. He goes, let's rock. <laughs> and, runs out. and this starts satisfaction, you know. And then as soon as the beat kicks in, we start going, you know, we're nailing it. And, and I remember that we got to the ride out and Mick Jagger is loving it. And he keeps looking at us and, and they're going, going. So he's stretching out the ride out. Well, you know, in a soul band, you know, when the ride out's really kicking, the lead trumpet player takes it up an octave. <laughs> so Mick Gillette, and he had great range, you know. Boom, he takes it up. He's blowing. And, you know, and Mick Gillette's loving it. I mean, uh, uh, Mick Jagger's loving it more and more and more. So he's making it go longer and longer. Meanwhile, Mick's uh -oh. face is getting redder and redder, you know. But he's making every note. He's burning it. And then finally he ends the tune. We hit the last chord. And um, uh, Mick Jagger goes, Top our horns. You know, we're in San Francisco. You know, they knew us. The place goes berserk, you know. And uh, Bill Graham jumps on my back. He's going, you guys are the greatest horns in the world. <laughs> you know? He's going crazy. It was the most incredible moment, man. It's, the adrenaline was unbelievable. Oh, my goodness. I can... I can only imagine. I mean, I, I would imagine. I was one of my questions was I was going to ask you: Is there a moment of all the the places you play, people you played with? If there's one that stands out, but I imagine that's probably <laughs> number one on the list. If I were to guess, I had a lot of good moments, but that was one of the best. Oh my goodness! I mean, such an incredible career. I mean, and just, just your sound is so. I mean. It, it's so distinct. It's so you. I mean, you've never, it, it, it's, it's never had the change because it's perfect in my opinion. I mean, I wanted to ask you, I mean, I know you get asked to, to play uh, so many session dates with so many different bands. And I know that the, a crucial component of your sort of agreeing to do it is to use your own arranger. And I wanted to ask you more about that. Like, what, how, how does that factor into, as somebody who loves music like I do, but, it, and, messes around on instruments, but is not a dyed-in-the-wool musician, would never call myself that. I want to know more about the kind of role that, that your arranger plays in helping craft your, your sound as a band. It's really uh, integral when you're doing session work for other artists that you have in mind the fact that it's about the artist. 
It's not about your horns or your arrangement. It's about the artist. So whatever you put on that recording needs to not get in the way. You know, whatever the hook of the song is, you, you can't step on it with the horn parts. If there's an incredible lead vocalist, you don't step all over that vocal <laughs> with your horn parts. You know, if there's a, a, you know, all these rock and roll bands have these, you know, you don't step on that with horns because when you go to mix, you know, you're trying to get the horns to st stand out, but the guitar, who is the main guy in the band, is going, so you got to make sure he's heard, and once you do, you can't hear the horns at all. So you have to pick your spots really carefully. And we had, uh, our horn arranger was Greg Adams for about 25 years, and he got that way of arranging down to a science, you know. He wrote really sparse arrangements when we did rock and roll bands, you know. And but when we played, it was during the whole, you know, maybe right on the one, bow, or you know, whatever it was, it was in the hole, and they could mix it really loud without covering up all the stars of the show, you know. And that's really the key. And what I find is when when I don't insist on having our ranger, we get hooked up with other people that don't realize that. And for some reason, people seem to think that uh Especially rock and roll people. They seem to think if you got saxes, well, you want to play low, low fifths, do, 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 you know. But as I said, you got three guitar players doing that, you know. So why would you do that, you know? And uh, we had that, um, that situation happen on an Aerosmith record, Just Push Play. If you listen to that recording, uh, the song that we're on, it's non existent, you know. And that's because. They insisted on using this arranger. I remember I told them, I said, you know, it really works better if we do the arrangement. No, no, our friend doesn't, you know, he's arranged for Barbara Streisand. He's really a musician, blah, blah, blah. I go, okay, what am I going to do? Tell them, no, it's an Aerosmith, you know. And, uh, but, you know, the arrangement just, it wasn't the type of arrangement that we do. And so when they went to mix it, they couldn't really bring it up, you know. It's as though we're not on the record. Uh -huh. So we get the credit. <laughs> you, know, you read the back of the album, Tower Power Horns, you're like, great, where are they? You know. How about you, when you're writing, is this something that you do every day or is it something that really you have to be moved to do? Doc writes every day. Doc carries a notebook with him. He's very passionate about writing. I, I, I've always, and it's interesting because, you know, I really make most of my money from my writing, you know, but I put very little time into it. But, you know, like like we, we had the pandemic and uh, I make appointments with people, you know. I, I have a few people I write with and sometimes I want, want to write with somebody new and I'll just say, you know, how are you doing Tuesday at 11, you know. Show up and we write a song. In the old days, you know, me and Doc lived together and, you know, there was a lot of drug and alcohol use. So, you know, we'd party and getting high. It's like, hey, let's write. We'd start to write, you know. But, you know, now everybody's sober you know, we all got families, we all got homes. And so we make appointments, you know, we show up and uh, we always pray first. You know, that's the first thing we do. And then we talk a little bit, you know, uh, what's going on, you know, and just kind of talk. And then if anybody's got a particular idea, I might have a rhythm idea or a hook. Uh, Doc might have a lyrical idea. You know, I might have a chord progression or we'll just I'll just sort of start noodling around and go, oh, that's cool. You know, and it's like, it's like fishing, you know, 
Once you get a bite, then you reel it in. You know, if, if it's the hook, then you want to write a story and the first verse that leads to it. And then after the first hook, you want to develop that story further in the second verse. And then you know, you, maybe you do the, the hook again, or maybe you take a left turn to do what's called a bridge. You know, and a bridge could be a musical bridge. It could be a lyrical bridge. It could change chords completely, or it could be the same chords, but put a little guitar thing over it, you know, but something that separates, that does sort of a left turn. And then back to the hook, or maybe half of a, a verse where you develop the story a little more even, maybe with a little extension on it, go to the hook, and then build the ride up. This is probably a loaded question, but do you think that songwriting is something that anyone can do, or is it something that you kind of have to be born with in some ways? Well, I don't know that you have to be born with it, but no, it's not something that anybody can do. That's what I... <laughs> I, I, I good, I feel a little better, because I've... I've played a number of instruments since I was a young teenager and I've never been able to write a song my whole life. Try as I might. It's never been something that... Uh... It helps me to write with people. I don't mm. write alone. Although, during the pandemic, I wrote a few songs by myself. And that, that was the first. But I think I just... I like to bounce off of people. You know, To me, it's just easier. Well, that was what I was going to ask you. Are, are these songs that you've been working on during the pandemic, are they, uh, is there a new album on the way? or? Well, I, I want to do, um, you know, the last time we recorded, uh, besides the live thing, we did two albums, uh, Soul Side of Town, and then one came out called Step Up during the pandemic. And we recorded all that material at once. So I worked on it for like many years, you know, and uh, it was 28 songs, you know. So that's a big project, but it really, it really paid off, you know, and uh, it had a cohesiveness. We had two really great products with some bonus tracks that we could use for Japan or Europe. It just worked out really well. So I'd like to do uh, the same thing, record two albums. And I want to record a Christian album. You know, I, I became a Christian in 2004. And as a Christian, I started listening to, uh, gospel praise music and it's my opinion that all the great soul singers are in the church <laughs> i'm a yeah. huge fan of yolanda adams dietrich haddon uh, I, I just love all these uh, uh gospel praise singers and, and their productions really contemporary you know fred hammond um, oh yeah yeah you know uh and so i want to do a, a christian album and a secular album and, but I want to record them all at once. Oh, that'd be records. really cool. So that's the plan right now, tentatively, you know. But meanwhile, everybody's writing. I've written a bunch. Doc's always writing. The guys write. And uh, when it's time to uh, make the record, we'll listen to everything, choose some songs, and get them done. I know you just got off the road, I think, a matter of days ago. But any, any plans for uh, heading back out there soon? We, we, you know, we're, we're not a band that says, I'm going on tour, and then you're, you're off for a few months. We just go <laughs> in and out all the time. So we did our first gig at the Hollywood Bowl on August 8th, and then we flew cross country, and we had a couple of days off. We flew across country, and we did a little East Coast, Northeast run, and then we came back, and then we went to the Bay Area, did some dates, came back. You know, so we kind of, we do these little 
Sometimes they're three weeks, sometimes they're five days, sometimes it's a weekend. You know, right now, I don't have a gig for almost three weeks, and then I go out for, I think, six dates. And um, that's how we do it. We're just always in and out. And it's usually 200 days a year we're away from home. And, uh, you know, that that's not all gigs. It's travel days and days off on the road. But at least at least 170 gigs, probably. Wow. 150, I don't know. I'm bad with that stuff. Still loving it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, people, you know, uh, I'm also in the recovery community, you know, so a lot of these people, the meetings that I attend, they know what I do now, you know. And they're always like, so... So how'd it feel? Feel good to get back? <laughs> yes. It feels really comfortable. It feels like we got back together. We did we did the Hollywood Bowl, then we went out to the East Coast and we were we located ourselves in Boston. We went up to New Hampshire, did two gigs in Boston, then went down towards Virginia. And I think it was about three days in, we were all hanging out and uh, and Garibaldi goes, Man, he goes, it's amazing how the way it comes back so quick, you know. And we had rehearsed a couple of couple of days, you know, but it just right now it just feels so in the pocket. And uh, you know, I have a great group of guys. I mean, we are truly friends and brothers, and uh, we support each other and, and we miss each other, you know. So uh, it's always great to get back out there and be with them. Got a great crew. I have great management. After all these years, you know, I've I've learned how to hire well. <laughs> <laughs> could say that again absolutely oh Emilio thank you so much I don't want to take up too much more of your time but it has been such a joy and a pleasure talking to you I, I really and an honor I, I hasten to add thank you so much for your time today and your music it really means a lot to me thank you Jordan it's my pleasure we hope you enjoyed this episode of Inside the Studio a production of iHeartRadio for more episodes of Inside the Studio or other fantastic shows, check out the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Hey guys, back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.